All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of EMS on the Mountain. As usual, I'm Sean and joined as always by my partner, Mike. Today's topic is going to be pain management strategies in the backcountry. So a lot of this is, is pretty straightforward. If you're an ALS provider and you're familiar with all the various analgesic options that are out there, depending on your service, what you have access to, there shouldn't be anything too terribly shocking in here, but there are going to be some considerations you need to have in the back of your mind before you just start pulling vials and needles out and preparing to do it with your patients. Again, just like everything else, the extended patient care time often requires a different approach to pain management than we're usually used to. That time with patient going anywhere from 30 minutes at the extreme short end, working a little front country action at, a, at an easily accessible trailhead or a campground, easy day. That's uh, when you're in that backcountry mode and you're looking at hours that your pain management becomes a bit more challenging, requires a lot more thought, and requires you as an advanced provider to actually understand the drugs that you've got, how they work, how long they work, and be able to formulate an option and a plan to make sure your patient remains as comfortable as you can make them throughout the time of your contact. So big one, right off the bat, do you have enough of any of the drugs you carry to last the duration of your contact? Right? I know in Mike and I's case, pretty much the only drug we've got that will last for the extended times that we often see is going to be ketamine, simply because it's a big vial with a boatload of ketamine. Now, could we still run out of that? Yeah, absolutely, depending on how much analgesia is required and how long we've got that patient. But we do carry both fentanyl and morphine as well, but we've only got a couple of vials of each, right? So you got to think about, you know, if, if, if all I had access to was two vials of fentanyl, is that going to cover me for four to six hours? And I will tell you through experience, no, not if you're trying to maintain a reasonable degree of analgesia. Now, a lot of that is patient dependent, the type of the injury. And, and how well your patient tolerates pain individually. So things you got to keep in mind. And how fast they're metabolizing, right? That's exactly it, right? Yeah, so you got that young, fit, ultra-marathoner. He might burn through that, that fentanyl pretty quick. Whereas if you've got someone who's uh, a bit more of a sedentary lifestyle, yeah, you might be good. But then again, they might also have a bit more body mass to work with. And that 50 microgram dose might not go as well or be as effective right. as you want it to be as well. The other thing to keep in mind is do you have the protocols for it? It's completely agency dependent, but if you're working on building a new, I'll call a skill set or, or a, a muscle for wilderness rescue, a lot of these contact times are simply longer than you would see in the front country. And this is where working with your medical director and working on what to do if and when there's a extended care scenario. It's not to say that you can't always call for orders. But sometimes you can't always call for orders <laughs> and you have to have standing protocols that allow you to make these decisions, make these care decisions uh, appropriately. But the last thing you want to do is provide a dose of analgesia or two and then say, I'm sorry, I can't give you anymore. I'm out or I can't give you anymore. I don't have standing orders and my cell phone won't work. I would never recommend that you dose somebody for a short period of time and then just kind of roll with it. Well, you know, we're at the limit, so we're just going to go ahead and... and uh, Keep rolling. Sorry for your pain. It's not the best way to handle the situation. So you, this, yeah. this comes back to what we've talked about in other podcasts, but you got to pre-plan, right? You got to have this plan in place. And that includes having appropriate standing orders to take care of the problem as they come up. Yeah. And, and that's, this is a great point because individual protocols pre-hospitally for, for regular EMS responders, you're not looking at, generally speaking, very long transport times. 
my transport times can be a little bit longer than Mike's are normally when we're working at our normal urban agencies, but still 30, maybe 45 minutes total. I can handle that with the, the, I, you know, I have fentanyl or ketamine at my disposal. It's not a problem. And my protocols allow me to basically use all of the fentanyl I carry because I only carry so much, right? But on the other hand, for those working in the wilderness and austere environments, if your protocols limit you saying, hey, you can dose no more than a complete total dose of 100 micrograms for any given injury. One single dose of 100 micrograms is great for that short 15, 20, 30 minute contact time and transport. It's not enough to get you a patient several hours out of the backcountry and provide reasonable pain management. So yeah, your, your protocols have to be flexible. They do need to have specific provisions for when you are unable to make contact with your whatever your med control is, because your provider has to be able to make the right decisions for the patient to provide the care necessary. And if your protocols are extremely limiting, you're limiting the provider's ability to properly care for a patient. Another limitation might be your drug availability. Maybe you simply don't have a stockpile large enough to carry what you need to carry, or perhaps your agency simply doesn't stock something like ketamine. Maybe it's it, it uses fentanyl only for various reasons. They've chosen just, this is what we carry, this is what we use, and this is what you have, which begins to limit your options. And lastly, of course, biggest limitation, patient sensitivity, right? So if your only option for pain management is an opioid, you're really putting yourself in a precarious position when you have a patient who is perhaps a former addict who wants nothing to do with opioids anymore. And they know if they get that one, even for that shattered femur, it could put them on a slope to slide right back down to where they were perhaps years or months before. Uh, and we don't want to do that for our patients. Uh, yeah. So got to think sometimes parents don't want their children to be receiving opioid pain management, even if it's completely safe and it's the most appropriate choice. Just it's something you need to be available or uh, a consideration you need to be having. Or if you have patients who, for I guess we'll just call it bad luck, have known sensitivities or allergic reactions to the opioids in their family. I recently had a patient who had that exact problem. They basically couldn't have any opioids. So their choices in pain management were essentially left down to OTCs for the most part. And yeah. um, it is what it is. But so, so you got to always think of the limitations and put those into your planning factor. So first off, most common analgesics, most of us pre-hospitally deal with fentanyl and morphine. Morphine is kind of falling out of favor in a lot of places. They're switching exclusively to fentanyl. My urban agency no longer uses morphine. We're fentanyl and ketamine. That's it. We don't even, nobody's got morphine on trucks anymore and haven't for years. Morphine will have a longer half-life which is its advantage over fentanyl. However, it does come with some of its own contraindications. The biggest ones are your, your suppression of your respiratory drive. And if you're on those extended patient carryouts, these are things you need to be considering, right? Do you have the ability to continuously monitor your patient if you've given them morphine? If you're, especially if you're starting to, we won't say high dosing, but we're talking about additional doses of morphine so if you've given your initial dose and then you're following that up every 30 to 45 minutes or so, those doses all kind of start building up in the system and you could reach a point where all of a sudden you realize your patient's not breathing as they should be and now you've got another issue to deal with. So backcountry-wise, morphine might not be the choice. I know Mike likes morphine for various reasons. 
one of them is that it's really just the half-life and that's what i said that's it's really it's the half-life is is what gives you a good advantage for backcountry yeah i don't love it or hate it morphine has a longer half-life and so when i'm doing the calculations against i only have so much medication this patient for whatever reason we've had patients that are opposed to ketamine they don't want to take ketamine but they want something for the pain or a lot of times it's, I don't want anything. I don't want anything. You get them in the stokes, you start moving down the trail. Oh man, it turns out that this is not a, a fluffy, comfortable ride. And I would, I would prefer some pain management. One yeah. dose of morphine is going to get you two, three hours down the road. Uh, you got some heavy, strong morphine, man. Uh, it depends, right? Half-life of morphine is between two and four hours, depending on the, the concentration. So, so super dense concentration, uh, five milligrams. It's not uncommon to be at 50% at four hours for somebody that's not up and running and moving around. Yeah. I'm not saying that that's true with everyone, but uh, morphine does typically last longer before people are starting to experience the pain again when compared to fentanyl. Absolutely, so. right. And, and so that brings us around now to fentanyl, right? Again, great drug, but it does, compared to morphine, much, much shorter lifespan. It's just as effective. Some people find it more effective. You don't have the the same worries as you do with morphine about suppression of the respiratory drive and things like that, which is definitely a consideration. But at the same time, you continue to keep dosing 50 micrograms here and there and there and there and there and there for several hours. You're still building up that fentanyl in the system. It isn't just like at 20 minutes, it's purged and it's out and you're starting fresh, right? So you got to keep an eye on it, right? It's going to slowly build up. And for any of the opioids, you, you really have to be on your ball and paying attention to your patient. You got to be doing those assessments continuously. As we've mentioned in previous episodes, right? You've got to be checking those blood pressures. You've got to be checking your patients. How are they breathing? Are they starting to slow way down? And this is yep. where, as we talked about, a rescue manager and then the, the primary caregiver. You need to stay in that primary caregiver role. You need to try and not be on the litter as a litter carrier. You need to be there monitoring your patient, especially if you're, you're working these analgesias for a uh, extended periods you really got to be on your patient and paying attention to what they're doing and their reactions to it uh but those are obviously excellent drugs now can you use like a good combo is versed and fentanyl together you kind of get a bit of sedation but the versed and fentanyl potentiate and you get a, a longer lasting good pain management scenario for your for your patients but again you're, you're starting to look at you know am i going to depress any respiratory drive or anything else by now partially sedating my patient. Is that something my patient can, can tolerate? And is it something I really want to do with my patient right now? So yeah. you, you got to think about that. It's not a simple, hey, I'm just going to get this now, really lay you out. And then by the time you wake up, you're going to be in ED and a bunch of doctors and nurses hovering around you. Right. There's <laughs> Ketamine has got such a, a bad rap at the moment, but I, I know... <laughs> I know folks that, that are pro-ketamine doctors and providers. I know people that are anti-ketamine. There's some systems that are very reserved with its use. There's some systems that are very liberal with its use. This is partially a systems thing, partially a, a provider thing, right? I personally, as, a, as an analgesic, I think ketamine works pretty well for those that tolerate it. I do not love bolusing ketamine repeatedly mm. if I can avoid it. There's, for those of us that are not ALS providers or paramedics, listening to the podcast, there's different responses to ketamine at different doses. And it's been my experience in the patients we've treated over the years that if you're bolusing ketamine as opposed to 
doing an initial bolus and then doing some sort of drip management, your patients can tend to come in and out of the somewhat unpleasant phase of ketamine administration. There's a dosing range. It kind of varies for people, but it's at the light end of ketamine administration. And when you're trying to dance around that space for analgesia purposes and you're with them for 7, 8, 10, 12 hours, they're metabolizing the ketamine, you're providing some more. They're metabolizing the ketamine, you're providing some more. And there can be, it's kind of referred to as a bad trip. Yeah. Uh, It's not the most pleasant experience for some people. And unfortunately, unless you can build a drip and have the standards for it or, or have some tooling like a pump with you for whatever reason you have a pump in the woods, it's very hard to maintain a baseline of ketamine. So I'm not opposed to it. We use it all the time. Uh, it's just something to keep in mind that if, you're, if your orders only allow you to bolus it, you have to, you have to keep in mind that the patient may be experiencing the not so pleasant aspects of ketamine administration. Yeah, see, and that's the thing is I'm on the camp of the uh, ketamine is amazing. Ketamine for all my friends. But again, as, as Mike pointed out, it's not perfect. It has issues, right? So if you're, depending on your protocols and your dosing ranges, and if you misestimate your patient's weight, and you end up putting them in that, what we'll call the recreational party dosing of ketamine, which is where people end up with the really bad trips, it's a bad thing for your patient. I had that happen to a patient a while back because we knew it was going to be an extended carryout. I wanted to use ketamine just because so I, I could keep her a bit sedated keep the pain down. But we also knew it was going to be a long walk out. And it, it was definitely the best choice. However, after dose one, it was immediately obvious that she and ketamine were not going to get along. And so we had to go to plan B, which was back to fentanyl. I use fentanyl all the time on the urban side. I hardly ever use ketamine pre-hospitally on the urban side. When I do, it's for its it's used as a sedative, right? And when I, when I need to yeah. sedate a patient is when I'm using ketamine in the urban side. And you might need to use that sedation piece for your patients in the backcountry, but you yeah. also have to be prepared for when they start to come out of that. If they're one of those people that does not react well with it when they're coming out, their reemergence phenomena, mm-hmm. you, know, you just got to be prepared for it. It doesn't last forever. You just kind of cut a help coach them through it, let family members know that it's okay. This is, this is not ideal, but this may happen. Uh, and this is also one of those times when if you've also got Versed, if they start coming out of the ketamine and starting to have a bad time, you, you give them a, a little bump of Versed, just kind of sedate them again and let the rest of that ketamine wear off. And this time when they come back out, hopefully the ketamine has been metabolized. It's clear. Metabolized. And then yeah. they come out with a much more clear head and a normal reemergence with the Versed. Yep. Or as, as we've had to do before for things like femur fractures, right? You just keep them sedated. Yes, absolutely. Um, it's a possibility, but these are all, these are all things that you have to consider, right? I will say that because of the, the volume that is uh, carried, typically ketamine comes in a, uh, a much higher concentration in a single vial than you will get with fentanyl or morphine for at least pre-hospital use, right? The single use vials model, the, the 5 ml vial. A lot of I've seen a lot of folks biased toward, well, I've got enough ketamine to get through this. I don't have enough fentanyl or morphine to get through this extrication. So we're just going to bias toward ketamine. Nothing wrong with that, but you have to be prepared to manage the ketamine experience for the duration of the contact with the patient if that's going to be the case. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, like I said, a great drug, big fan, but it can't be your answer to everything. Just like pre-hospitally anywhere, you have to pick the right tool for the right job at the right time. You might start off. And like in the example of, the, of a fractured femur, start off like, hey, we're going to sedate, 
just so we can get this femur, get the leg back in position, get it splinted. And while you're sedated, we can now transition you into the litter, get you packaged up and start you down the trail. And then you start coming out of that. Things are looking good. Then maybe, uh, depending on your initial bolus of ketamine and how long it's it's lasting for your patient, then you might be able to switch to uh, traditional fentanyl or morphine to finish out your your extrication with your patient. So don't feel like, oh, I started with ketamine, I got to keep with ketamine, or I started with fentanyl, I got to stay with fentanyl. Like the patient I had, when we went to go do the initial splinting and repositioning of, of, of her fractured leg, she got an initial bump of, of fentanyl. Just to take that edge off right now, let's get it nice and comfortable. We'll get you splinted up, get you in the basket. And then when we're ready to begin the long transition for the actual carryout is when we were going to switch over to ketamine. And it just didn't work out. And she got fentanyl for the rest of the trip. Yep. I remember that expectation. Yeah. It was good. I mean, she was, I will say that patient was a trooper because I couldn't keep her dosed appropriately. And that's what Mike was talking about, right? So you're going to have patients that are riding the wave, like literally sine waves up and down. Like we get to a point and she'd be like, hey, Sean, how about some of them drugs again? It's like, all right. So you go on over and you give her another bump of fentanyl. She'd be like, oh, okay, there we go. And she knew exactly when it hit. She was honest about it. Where some people are like, no, I just don't know if that's enough yet. And it's like, oh, okay. When you quit yelling ouch every time the litter bangs, you have enough. You have uh, enough, yeah. Uh, yep. So again, that's a, that's a paying attention to your patient thing as well. And so, yeah. we, so we, we played that game and, and, it, and it was not ideal. To keep your patient coming in and out of those, oh, this really, really hurts. This really, really hurts. Okay, can't take it anymore. Give me the stuff. Okay, I'm great. And you keep going until they can't stand the pain anymore to keep going. It's what we had to do with her, but it wasn't the ideal choice. No, it, it certainly wasn't. But we also did give her a Tordal. Yes, we um, did. And I'm a huge advocate of Tordal. Oh, yeah. I, I love me some Tordal. It's a great drug. It takes a little bit longer to, to act, but it's not opiate-based, right? And uh, Supermotrin, as Sean likes to call it. Yes. It's, uh, it's really, really effective, especially for those patients that aren't in excruciating pain, right? We don't need to, I, I think sometimes we, we forget that we don't need to make the pain go away. We need to make the pain tolerable. Yeah. And I'm a big fan of combinations, right? I'm, I'll give them Tordal and fentanyl. Let's get the, can't think of the word. Take the edge off that initial hit, stabilizing it, and then yep. you kind of follow up with that Tordal, longer lasting, and you keep a little steadier pain relief going there. Yeah, and you get the anti-inflammatory properties, which you know the latest studies say probably aren't as good. But as of right now, we we want to manage inflammation, so they're they're getting a little bit of that along with it. It's also not a narcotic, so it's not as controlled. If you're worried about medication controls, which pretty much every agency is nowadays, it doesn't fall out of the DEA schedule for a narcotic. And so it's a little bit easier to manage the, the care and maintenance of Tordal. Nobody's running off with your Tordal for fun. Yeah. Hopefully. Yeah. I mean, unless they are. But And for the folks listening in that aren't familiar with Tordal, there's actually a lot of ALS providers because their agencies don't stock and use this drug. I'm, Mike and I are fortunate we have it both with our backcountry work and I use it and have it uh, pre-hospitally in my ambulance as well. Huge fan. I became a huge fan when it was first administered to me many, many moons ago when I had uh, injured <laughs> myself doing some work. And they were like, hey, man, we can keep you moving. Here, take these. And it was amazing. It was pill form. So I didn't have to get IV bolused with it. So it was good. But 
Ketorlak or Tordal, as it's known, is basically it's an NSAID, right? So it's ibuprofen, right? So I like to call it like super Motrin. Mm-hmm. It is absolutely fantastic drug. It does wonders. Excellent for your standard musculoskeletal injuries, right? So if you've got those that dislocated kneecap, sprained ankles, broken things, uh, we're talking manageable broken things, not necessarily a shattered femur or a pelvis. Those might want a little bit more. But for your, your pretty common orthopedic injuries, it's, it's a fantastic drug. And if you have access to it, it should always be top of your mind as a consideration. It is often overlooked or neglected because it's, it doesn't provide that near instantaneous relief like fentanyl, morphine, or ketamine will do. It does take a little bit of time to activate and become noticeable. The onset, because it is a bit more gradual, is not as noticeable to your patients. This is, again, one of those drugs where you might get an initial dose of fentanyl just to like, okay, let's cut that pain. Let's get you stabilized. And then we're going to follow that up with the Toradol. So by the time the, the fentanyl's wearing off, the Toradol's kicking in and you're in a much better state and it lasts much longer than, you know, just continuous bumps of, of like fentanyl. Fentanyl, yeah. Well, why don't you talk about its ugly cousin? Because I know you're, <laughs> you, you advocate this on every carry out everywhere. So. All right. So we'll call it Toradol's ugly cousin, right? This is, used to be known as the backcountry cocktail. It's OTCs, right? Over-the-counter meds. And it is nothing but ibuprofen and acetaminophen, right? So commercially, Motrin and Tylenol. Um, most common dosages, although we are not advocating any doses, always follow your local medical direction and your protocols. But for this combo, usually it's 600 milligrams of ibuprofen and 1,000 milligrams of acetaminophen. And when you put those two together, they potentiate and provide excellent analgesia. I've done a couple of research papers on the subject, and there's a lot of data that's been out there, which came from when the opioid epidemic and the prescription of opioid pain relief from hospitals became really publicly known and hospitals started researching what other options were out there that weren't these heavy duty, possibly very addictive or known to be very addictive pain relievers were, they looked at this. IV Tylenol by itself has been very popular in Europe, especially uh, places like Great Britain. It's a huge pre-hospital drug for them. It's not it's a different concentration and mix than just taking like a thousand milligrams of acetaminophen now and putting that in a liquid form and shooting it in. It's, it's a different mix, but it's very, very effective. Uh, I, I kind of liken IV acetaminophen in Europe to Toradol or Ketorolac here in the US because it's, it's, it's essentially, it's an OTC medication that people are able to give for analgesia intravenously and provided a quicker onset and provide good pain management. The good thing about doing both ibuprofen and acetaminophen is they're both metabolized separately, right? One's in the kidneys, one's in the liver. So you're not trying to crush one of those organ systems with both of these and your body trying to metabolize and flush it out through both. As you know, overdosing on acetaminophen causing acute liver failure is one of those not cool things, very painful way to do it. It's not the best. Uh, Yeah. And beating your kidneys up with ibuprofen all the time is, is also not a good idea. All right. So when you can have two basic OTCs, when you combine them, provide on par, depending on the study you read, with morphine and overall pain management, you've got a pretty good combination there and something you should certainly consider. That being said, you have to be authorized in your protocols to administer OTCs. Fortunately for Mike and I both in, in the backcountry world, we are. 
I'm a big fan of this. A lot of times this will be another one of those, give them initial shot of, of fentanyl or morphine, get that injury stabilized. And then we're going to follow up with, with this, this combo of drugs right here, right? I had one patient several years ago now who once this all kicked in, thought it was the greatest thing, kept that person. And this is somebody we had for 18 hours. And this is how we kept them pain-free for that 18 hours was... OTCs. Yeah, they, uh, they actually didn't want an opioid for various reasons. So they got an initial bolus of, of Toradol. Once that got them calmed down and, and their pain generally managed, we got everything stabilized and happy. Advised them that they were going to be on their very first overnight camping experience with us, which they were not exactly happy about, but they understood because they were unable to walk out on their own. And after that, they got a regular dosing of ibuprofen and acetaminophen to kind of keep that NSAID train rolling along and lasted them throughout the duration of that contact, provided excellent pain management, and it, which resulted in basically a comfortable and happy patient uh, at night. Who slept through the night. Exactly. At night, we didn't have to, and it was very, very cold. And Mike and I were snuggly buddies. Yeah, it was brutally cold, um, but the patient was comfortable and their pain wasn't keeping them up. Yeah, and that's the thing. And you knew your patient was alive and healthy because we could hear them breathing loudly <laughs> all night long. So it was like, nope, they're, they're certainly alive right now and excellent respiratory rate, which is good. I mean, it showed that it was working for them. So it's something you need to consider. Don't just dismiss, oh, OTCs can't do much for me. Dig into it. Do the research. You'll find that, at least in the hospital setting, that they have found uh, this combination can be as effective as morphine for pain management. Now, is it going to have that immediate satisfactory, like, oh yeah, there it is? No, definitely not. It's much slower onset, but once it's on board and it's working, it works well. So I would strongly urge you to look into it. If this is something that uh, you might be interested in, do your own research, read about it. Do know the pros and cons, because obviously if people are allergic to NSAIDs and other things, then you're not wanting to be giving them to them. You do need to make their patients aware that there could be some, you know, GI upset depending on their individual responses to these meds. Some people do not tolerate ibuprofen on an empty stomach at all. Uh, same with acetaminophen. So you just have to be aware, just like any other drug, that there could be some consequences. And not, we're not saying necessarily super bad ones, but you just need to know what's going on with it. One of the best things about this, though, is obviously very stable. Super easy to carry, and if allowed by local medical control, your BLS providers can give this to your patients. Let's think about that for a minute. A lot of times, like uh, we mentioned before, the only reason Mike and I get sent out on some calls is for pain management. Analgesia. Right? And so if you don't need me to show up, like if it's, again, call it a relatively benign orthopedic-type injury, but they need some sort of pain management to help them throughout uh, the remainder of their, either they're hiking out, with an injured arm, shoulder, something, or they might be even getting carried out and be Mike or I aren't available, or you don't want to take your, your, maybe your own one ALS asset out of the mix by putting them on this long duration carry out. If you have your BLS providers who can administer an ibuprofen and acetaminophen combo and provide some of that pain management, in my opinion, is a win-win, right? You're helping your patients, you're, you're putting another tool in the med kit for your BLS providers. And, and it's something that's, relatively speaking, a benign set of drugs. It's, you can do some harm with them, obviously, but if you're following your protocols and you're doing things appropriately, you generally aren't going to have too much of an issue with it. 
I always ask about allergies, past medical history. Yeah, exactly. Right? That there's no kidney failure. You know, they're they're not an end stage liver disease. They're probably going to be okay. Exactly. You know, and again, just you know, hey, did you have either of these drugs before I got here? When did you have them? Maybe somebody gave them already gave them 600, 800 milligrams of of ibuprofen. Well, start them off with the acetaminophen. You can stagger it. Uh, it was very common for pediatric patients when they're sick. Doctors awful prescribe or recommend that the parents give them uh, ibuprofen and acetaminophen, alternating it. So, hey, at this four-hour mark, you get this. At this four-hour mark, you get this. And you just alternate the two so that you're not flooding the body with both drugs at the same time. Well, as a matter of fact, I believe, who's it, Mike? Uh, Advil, I think, is now yeah. manufacturing. Advil is now doing, yep, I have it in the cabinet upstairs. There's a yeah. Advil with, uh, it's acetaminophen and ibuprofen in a single pill. Yeah, and it's... The dosages are slightly off. The the, yeah. the ratios are slightly different than this. But, no, yes, yeah, it's, yeah. it's, yeah, again, it's... It's more, we'll call it that safer dosing level for average OTC sales. But yeah, I mean, this is so good that there's a manufacturer out there that's putting this together in a single pill form, right? So it, it's, it's, in my opinion, one of those things that definitely don't forget it. It should be available in your toolkit in that austere wilderness setting. It can be very beneficial to you in your practice. All right. Absolutely. So the one thing uh, we've kind of talked around a little bit. There are going to be scenarios when you simply cannot do enough or do as much as you want to. Uh, like uh, with the example of that patient I had who had to keep hitting that fentanyl roller coaster for her, I think we had what, almost six hours with her uh, on the carryout alone. Right? I had her as yep. a patient for, I think, 12 hours almost. That just might be the reality of it, right? So for most of us pre-hospital people who are, who are not afraid to provide analgesia, I know some of my contemporary counterparts, I won't call them stingy or they're, they're not doing it in a malicious intent, but they just don't think about providing pain management probably as often as they should. Mike and I both view pain management as, as essentially almost as a fundamental patient right, right? So if, if I have the means to make a patient more comfortable, then I should. There's no reason for you to leave a patient in pain just because, eh, I'm not sure if I want to give you morphine. If your patient's in pain and they could use some analgesia, then give them give the analgesia. analgesia, right? I listen to, and I know Mike does, and probably most of you, I hope, who are listening to us, also listen to bunches of other medical podcasts. This is a great resource for learning and just hearing other people's opinions and experiences. Don't worry about, like, not so much a, an issue for us in the austere environment, but everybody's always, but what if they're drug-seeking? Cool, you They're win. Paid. You got a dose of fentanyl from me. Congratulations! Right? Congratulations. If yeah. I think you're in pain, then I think you're in pain, and I'm going to treat you. But at the same time, I have to be very realistic with the patients. Um, let them know that maybe I cannot keep you as comfortable as you or I would both like for as long as I would like us to be. We might have to ride that train a bit. And there's going to be ups and downs. A little expectation management. Let them know it's like, hey. And you get to the point where the pain is starting to get to be too much. You let me know. We'll give you some more and we'll mellow you out for a bit. And again, it goes down to your limitations. What do you have? Do you have enough of it? If, if I have to ration, like if I've only got two, three, four vials of fentanyl with me and I'm realistically looking at several hours of extrication or patient contact time, I really need to be familiar with that drug. What can I realistically expect, give or take, for my half-life of, of how long this can be effective for them and plan for that? And we might get to a point where it's like, maybe we're going to start you off strong on some fentanyl. And then we're going to switch you over to some OTCs for more of the long-term care. 
And maybe yeah. somewhere in that process, maybe we give you another bump of fentanyl along the way or ketamine or whatever your analgesia choice might be. So it's just something you need to be aware of, you know, knowing your protocols, know your limits and be able to think, right? You, this is one of the challenges I know that Mike and I both appreciate about austere medicine is it requires you to actually think through the problem. This isn't a simple solution set where you can just be a protocol monkey and go, well, page 32 of the book says I do this, 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 and this, and then I drop you off to a doctor, right? That's just not the case for the most part. So you really have to plan through these things. You have to think about them and you have to understand what the short-term, long-term consequences are. Not just the short-term of, yeah, this is just going to be uncomfortable, but you're going to be at the hospital in 15 minutes and then they'll hook you up, right? It, it's really, it's the yeah. long game that you have to consider. Uh, I mean, technically we are the hookup. That's, that's kind of the big difference, right? When the mentality of, well, it'll be 20 minutes and then we're at the hospital and they'll give you the quote unquote good stuff. Well, we are the ones with the only good stuff they're yeah. going to get. Yeah. And you have to manage it appropriately, right? You have to be able to think. I'm a big advocate just personally of weight-based dosing for all analgesia. Yeah. I'm not a huge fan of, of the book says give X. I always do weight calculations partially as a conservation method and partially as a I want to make sure I'm giving you the right amount of medication over the time that we're together. I don't want to push you in and out of waves of things. And if at all possible, drips, I'm a, I'm a fan of drips for long-term context, but those aren't always realistic. And it's hard to, it's hard to make a drip work in the backcountry. Yeah. You know, yeah. You show, you show me somebody that says they're getting a perfect drip count on in the backcountry while walking down the trail, holding a bag while it's dripping. And I'll show you somebody that, that didn't count very well. Um, drip, <laughs> drips are very, very hard to do in a, in a moving environment. So. All right. And yeah, and I will say that I've taken that game so far as to have sat down with some PVC pipe trying to figure out essentially an A-frame setup that I could mount to the Stokes litter <laughs> that I could hang a bag from so that I could actually see a drip chamber and count drops so that I could provide fluid on the move with the patient. Yeah. because. And that's something that most people don't think about when they're administering IV fluid is, is once I lay you horizontal into that stretcher, there's no striker power cot with a right. pole that extends up to hang my IV bag on, right? It's, yep. It ends up usually, if, I'm, if I actually still need to continue flowing fluids, it's clipped to the shoulder strap of my backpack as I'm walking next to you. And, and just the nature of the bag yeah. swinging and you walking. And, exactly, right? And all of that impacts drip count and, and drip volume. Yeah, and so, it's very, very hard to do that. So, yeah, I mean, unless you have pumps, it's probably not the best yeah, methodology. Same, same. Pumps, I'm not even sure, are ideal. So. Yeah, and there's, I mean, the military with like, especially like the special operations communities looked at portable pumps. There are certainly models that are out there that are designed, they're robust and they're relatively compact and light enough for this type of work. They're just not within my price range. And, yeah. and as we've mentioned, this, this is primarily a volunteer gig across the country. I mean, unless you've got a kind and generous sponsor somewhere getting a hold of yeah. of good robust lightweight field grade pumps is not always attainable right so but if you get pjs working out of an air wing that's uh, providing support to your area yes, go for it yeah, see what you can get man maybe they'll feel bad for you and <laughs> give you some old stuff <laughs> all right so one of the last things before we have some just some other random discussion on this one is med control right if your protocols are black and white this is your analgesia. It's fentanyl. You may give 50 micrograms and you can give that two, three, maybe four times for a total of 200 micrograms. 
it's super. It's a great solid number for a 30-minute ambulance ride somewhere, perhaps. So you need to have that option, be able to get on your phone or maybe a radio, depending on how your communication system is set up. Talk to a doctor. Say, hey, doc, this is what I got. This is what I need to do. This is my plan. Do you concur? And I like to phrase it all like that. A, you need to go in with a plan. Don't just say, hey, I I got somebody that needs pain meds. What do you want me to do? Because if that person doesn't understand the context of the environment you're in and and it's not a 15 minutes, it's like, just give them 50 micrograms of fentanyl and uh, get them on in here. We'll take care of it. It's like, no, 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 you don't understand. I've got 10 hours before I see you. So you need to paint the right picture for them to let them know. It's like, hey, this is where I am. This is what is going on. This is what I'm doing. And you need to come with the plan. Don't ask them for the plan. You need to know yourself as the provider, what your plan is, what you want to do. And really what you're looking for is concurrence and that official nod from dad saying, yes, son, that's a solid plan. You do that, right? Because then you have a bit of your top cover. So when people start asking, why did you use four times the dose per protocol? You say, well, because I consulted med control and they cleared me to do this. And it's like, oh, sounds good. But if you go in there and you you don't have the plan, you didn't work it out, you're going to get, depending on where you're at, some doctor's like, yeah, I'm not so sure that that might be a good idea. So I want you to stick within protocol and just get them here as soon as you can. And then you're kind of like, ah, well, balls, right? So it could end up hurting your plans. So you have to be prepared. You have to know what you're talking about and you have to put forth a reasonable plan and hope that the physician on the other end is going to concur with you. And I know Mike and I had an experience dealing with this uh, a while back. And while the physician agreed with us that said, yeah, it certainly sounds like you know what you're doing. And I agree that that's the best plan. I don't think it'll, you'll be able to execute it as effectively as we all want you to. And it really it revolved around that drip piece. And the reality of it is he's right. But at the same time, we were hoping to be able to provide a better more consistent bit of analgesia for a patient. That didn't work out, but then at the back end of that, he's like, however, you know you have the rest of your drugs, do whatever it is you need to do to keep your patient comfortable. And that comes down to a bit of a trust issue with the OMD in that case. He was like, he understood who we were, what we had, and trusted us that we were not going to overdose our patient using morphine or fentanyl. Right. Right. So it worked out, you know, essentially it worked out good, just not as as we had hoped it would. So right. Don't be afraid of med control, but man, you better go in with a plan and understand what you want and why. And some agencies have what are called offline orders, yeah. uh, orders that you can use if you are unable to contact med control. This is where the pre-planning comes into play. If you have a system that is really supportive of your providers that are out there for extended periods of time, have those conversations with your medical director, have those conversations, get those protocols written ahead of time. Uh, as we all know, as medical professionals, we are operating under a medical director's license. We are not able to make all of our own decisions at any given time. Uh, but sometimes in the backcountry, you do not have the ability to call for medical control. And that that's just the way it is. So if you don't have a good standing order, your hands are kind of tied, right? So get that documented ahead of time, have the conversation, make a plan, and then execute the plan if you're unable to get an, a hold of your medical director or of medical control. Yeah, and that's an excellent point, right? And again, that goes into, depending on, we'll call it the wilderness EMS agency you're working with and who you partner with, who you're supporting. Some of these things may already be in place and you just fall in on them and go, all right, this is good. In other instances, and Mike will concur, 
uh, even within the National Park Service, who has a National Park Service standardized protocol book that theoretically applies across the entirety of the NPS, every park has the ability to adjust that protocol to their specific needs. Right? Mm-hmm. And, and just like that, you could end up with a medical director who is not as familiar with austere or wilderness medicine. He was just a physician who was board certified and willing to serve as your OMD. It might not understand four, six, eight, 10, 12, 18, 20 hours of patient contact. So that's when you, you have to sit down with your leadership team, or if you are the leadership team, sit down with those medical directors and say, hey, this is what we encounter on a regular basis. This is what we would like to do. This is where we'd like to have our, our standing no contact protocols take place. And you might get an OMD who's like, you know, that actually sounds quite reasonable. I'm good with that, but let's dial it back to this. And you can go, okay, that's good. Find a nice, happy medium. And then you have someone that's like, wow, I, I'm just, I'm not comfortable with that at all. That's just so far outside of the norm that I'm, I'm not so sure that I'm comfortable allowing that. But you have to be able to have that conversation. I haven't met personally any OMDs who support wilderness agencies or wilderness and austere medicine EMS support that are not educated enough to understand and be able to make those decisions. But sometimes it takes you talking to that medical director saying, hey, sir, have we considered this? This might be a good option in these cases, which is actually how we ended up having Toradol at our disposal. Yeah, we asked for it. Yeah, we said, hey, what about Toradol? This could be a great option for this and this. And the OMD was like, wow, you know what? You're right. That's, that'd be great. And the next year, Toradol was authorized and we were getting it put in all our med kits. So it's great. And again, that was an easy win, in my opinion. It, you know, it's an NSAID. There are very few downsides to it. So things like, you know, having access to Toradol or your OTCs, even some wilderness places are like, eh, we don't want you administering OTCs. Okay. It's hard to justify a reason not to. So have those conversations and uh, make use of your OMD. And you need to get those plans put in place before you need them, uh, not afterwards. Uh, on the same coin on the other side, when you have that situation and you've learned that lesson, take that back, debrief it, put together a presentation, a paper, whatever you want to do with it, and submit that to the folks in those leadership positions that can help make these changes and maybe get these updates made, You know, show them the case studies and the reason why you would want to do that and, and make these changes happen. Yeah, the next thing you know, you get ISATs. Yeah. Epochs. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I don't see that happening. Well, is there anything else you want to cover, Sean? No, I think uh, just some of the big three things that uh, if you're going to take away from this episode, think through your long game, right? You got to plan deep into the future before you just start slinging narcotics at your patients, right? You might want to hit that quick, easy win, but you got to think about, do I have enough? And am I going to be able to keep them on the train I want them on? Or are we going to have to make a couple of track changes and switch some stuff up? Don't forget your OTCs. I think they're an excellent tool. Uh, if you were an ALS service or not really a big deal, yeah, man, get them on board. Use them. They're, they're fantastic. And uh, as a reminder, sometimes your patient might just have to be uncomfortable. If you can take the edge off and keep it more tolerable, then, and that is a win, in my opinion, by keeping them in pain for the duration of that carryout. Yeah. I've mentioned this before, but nobody went into the woods hoping that they get carried for nine hours in a basket unable to really sit up or or be able to uh move a lot so sometimes it's just going to be uncomfortable right we're not we're not seeking ideal all the time you're you're speaking seeking a level of 
of pain reduction that allows them to tolerate getting from point A to point B. And that's exactly it. Yeah. All right. Well, hope you enjoyed the show. As always, if you have any questions or comments, ideas for the show topics, if there's something you want to hear about or experiences you've had that you want to share, you can always reach out at the show at emsonthemountain.com. Uh, you can hit us up on social media, on Facebook, the Instagrams, the Twitters. And we look forward to talking to you soon. Thanks.